Thank you, Kleins and Kelsos, for that beautiful song, one of my favorites. Thankful that the Lord gives us great gifts that money can't buy. Amen. If we're feeling a little discontent, we should start making a list of all that we have that are things beyond a price tag. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you would, to the book of Lamentations, chapter 3. Lamentations, chapter 3. I'm trying to remember the last time I preached or I heard a sermon from Lamentations, and I can't remember the last time. Lamentations is one of those books that's often uh, overlooked. And... Uh, I think that one of the reasons that we overlook it is because Jeremiah says some things that make us a little uncomfortable. Uh, and so uh, sometimes, sometimes in order to get a more complete picture of our Lord, we need to, we need to look at those places. Lamentations chapter 3, I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And we'll pick up our reading in verse 31. And all the people were thrilled I didn't read the whole chapter like I sometimes do with all 66 verses. <laughs> Lamentations 3, beginning in verse 31. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, yet will he have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he doth not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men to crush under his feet all the prisoners of the earth, to turn aside to the right of a man before the face of the Most High, to subvert a man in his cause, the Lord approveth not. I'd like to lift verse 33 as our text this morning, for he doth not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. Father, we thank you so much for the songs that we've sung as we've celebrated the gifts that money can't buy. And one of the gifts that you give us is your spirit and your help and your anointing. And it's for that that we request this morning as we stand one more time behind the sacred desk would you help us to rightly divide the word of truth and may you be glorified and honored in it. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen. You may be seated. This week I had the privilege of going to Macy and uh, speak to the young people. And I had some young people with me. Uh, they needed a ride up. And so I had uh, four uh, unique young men there in the vehicle with me and and I'm not sure how it started, but some of them started telling about their life story. About homes with drugs and abuse and just, just things that would just break your heart. And uh, it was my responsibility on Friday to stand before those 49 young people and the adults and I had to speak to them about how you can get overcome, how you can overcome your past. And I knew full well, not just from that conversation, but from other conversations, that there were young people there that had stories that if they told them, um, they'd make us, I hope they would, they would humble us, and I think they would probably break our hearts. And as I was thinking about that and thinking about the, uh, the, all the suffering that, that is, was represented there uh, this, this week, but, but not just there, I was thinking about the suffering that is represented here. There's so much suffering. And, there's, and I think that one of the things that we struggle with so often is it, we just don't really know how to answer the question of why is there so much suffering? In fact, it's a question that's been asked down through the years. In fact, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to read you 
some different ones that have asked this question, how they've asked it. Epicurus, around 300 BC, he, he asked it this way. He says, either God wants to abolish evil and cannot, or he can, but he does not want to, or he cannot and does not want to. If he wants to but cannot, he's impotent. If he can and does not want to, he is wicked. But if God both can and wants to abolish evil, how comes evil into the world? And if you talk to atheists very much, they will almost always give some version of Epicarius' question. How about John R.W. Stott? He, he said it this way. He says, The fact of suffering undoubtedly constitutes the single greatest challenge to the Christian faith and has been in every generation. Its distribution and degree appear to be entirely random and therefore unfair. Sensitive spirits ask if it can be possible that we could reconcile this with God's justice and his love. Wow. Or how about Lee Strobel? He wrote in the, the Case for Faith. He says, Christians believe five things. First, God exists. Second, God is all good. Third, God is all powerful. Fourth, God is all wise. And five, evil exists. And then he asked this question, now, how can all of these statements be true at the same time? Wow. How can a perfect God who's all-powerful and all-knowing allow there to be suffering in this world that seems to defy justice? I suppose this morning if, if bad people got what they deserved and good people always prospered, we wouldn't have this question. I suppose that if every Hitler, if every uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, uh, if, if every uh, uh, terrible, horrible person throughout history suffered horribly and terribly, we would, uh, we would be okay with that. And every saint and every, every good person, if they prospered and they, were, and they did well, we could live in that kind of world and be okay with it. We would just say, well, they have what they deserve. If they do well, they would, they would be well. But that's not the way it works, is it? It doesn't work out that way. Evil, horrible, wicked people prosper. They make all sorts of money and they have all sorts of, uh, of worldly blessings. And, it, and it, you just look at it and you say, wow, how is it they have so much? And then you see this, this person who's trying to serve God and they, they wouldn't hurt anybody and they just love, love people and they just do all the best they can and they're sick and they're poor and they don't know how they're going to pay for their medication. And you're saying, God, how can this be? If you exist, if you're real, how is this possible? We'd like, to, we'd like to think that if, if all was right in the world and, and, you know, and, and God was who we say is, that the righteous would never starve to death. And yet we know that many Christians died in Nazi concentration camps from starvation and overwork. We, we know that there are Christians who've died in uh, prisons in China and in the Soviet Union as they were sent off to Siberia and, and were punished for their faith and it doesn't make sense. And so we have a question as a church. What do we do with suffering while we claim that God is all wise and all powerful? 
and just. And if you'll talk to young people why they don't believe in the Christian faith, they will say this over any other area. More than evolution, more than uh, doing what they want to do, they will come back over and over and say, this is it. This is the reason why we don't believe in God, because if God was all-powerful and, and, and he cared about people like you say he does, then suffering wouldn't exist for good people. And we're largely quiet about it as a church. We don't talk about it very often. Do you know why we don't talk about it very often? Because it makes us uncomfortable to talk about it. It's, it's an uncomfortable subject. Who wants to discuss why some good person is suffering needlessly? And there's no reason for it. And why this bad person who's, who's done all sorts of terrible things gets away with it and they buy their way out of the court system and they buy their, uh, buy their own forgiveness and they have just they just keep prospering. Why? Why would does that happen? And how can we talk about that as a church? I think before we get all before we get there, and before we even answer that question, I think the ver- the first thing that we have to answer is this: God does not enjoy human suffering. Lamentations tells us that God does not enjoy watching people suffer. This is not that God is wicked. That God says, you know, uh, let me see here. Uh, I'm going to pick somebody here to suffer. And, uh, oh, Brother Gary, uh, today you're, you're getting a toothache. Isn't that fun? He's holding his... Oh, isn't that great? You know, sometimes I think we think that... Uh, that, that maybe some go- a way that God gets a, a perverse pleasure. You know, some people preach that, that God's looking around and if you step out of line, he's, it, like, that God's going to get you right away. God's got a club that he's just wa- wanting to bop you over the head with it. God says, God says that's not me. That, that I, I get no pleasure from your suffering. So why is there suffering? Well, there's a lot of answers to that question. I don't know if all of them will satisfy you. I don't know that they satisfy me this morning. But I think it's helpful to talk about it. The first reason that people suffer is because his children, he disciplines them. He disciplines his children. Proverbs tells us that the Lord chasteneth his children. Revelations chapter 3, Jesus says that he chastens his children. There is a correction that comes from the choices that we make. There's a, there's a belief that God is, God is this great big grandpa that, that just gives everything to us. You know, I, I'm glad for grandpas that are great big teddy bears. But God doesn't say he's a grandpa. Now, I know some of you grandpas here, you say, I'm not like that. Well, <laughs> there are some that are. There is, there is a need for us to receive correction when we do not do well. When we are... Uh, in need of, of uh, some kind of, of correction, when we are in need of, of, of being pulled back into the right direction. And how many times did that happen to the children of Israel? You can go to the book of Judges, just for just, just one book, and to see how often 
the children of Israel, they, they, would, they, would, they started off all right until all the elders died off after, uh, with Joshua. And then all of a sudden we find them, they're, they're going after idols. And so here comes correction. Form of, a, of a, another nation who enslaves them. They cry out to God after, a, seems like a long time. You know, I think if, if, if another nation were enslaving us, I think I'd be crying out to God right away. Sometimes it took them like 20 years. It's like, come on, guys. And they call out to God, and, and God would send a deliverer. They'd be free. And they'd enjoy it for as long as that judge was alive, usually. That judge would die, and guess what they'd go and do again? They'd find idols to worship. I wonder if they had them buried under the tree somewhere or put them in the back closet just in case, you know. And I, I, It seems like they always had a fresh supply of idols, just, just handy. And so God would send another nation to bring discipline and they'd cry out. God would deliver them and they'd meet back and forth, back and forth. And sometimes you read it and it's just so frustrating. Some people say they don't even like the book of Judges. It's like a child, about a three-year-old, that I know real well. <laughs> that you're just trying and trying and trying to, to get the idea across that you cannot do this. You can't write on the walls. No coloring on the walls. And you know, you, you discipline them. All right, here's the Clorox wipe. You're going you're gonna to erase it all. Instead of going out and having fun outside. And oh, you'd think you'd cut their arm off. What a horrible, abusive parent you are. They get that done and, and wonderful, great, you go play, you know, your discipline's over. And it isn't two, three days later and what, what do you have? You got more writing on the walls. And it's back to the discipline. Sometimes the suffering that we experience is because God's trying to help us to make it. God's trying to help us to make it. And it doesn't always have to be sin. Sometimes it, it just might be that we need a little correction, maybe just a, 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 a little reminder. Sometimes, sometimes we just need some correction. Sometimes we suffer because it's a test. We were... Oh, Read the opening to Job, and it's, it's, it's almost a strange opening. God's holding court. He's in the throne room, sitting high upon his throne, and these angelic creatures are all standing there. They're giving their reports. And the Bible tells us the Satan, the adversary, steps forward to give his report. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? And I'm going to paraphrase here. He's doing awesome. He is he's holy. He's righteous. He serves me. He is, he is the guy. And every time I read that and every time I think about it, I say, oh, Lord, I hope that you could do that for me. I hope you can brag on, on me. And just kind of rub Satan's nose in it. Not that I'm wanting what happens next to happen, but I want, I want, I want God to be able to be, say, he's doing well. He's doing well. Satan says, you know what? I'm not sure this, this system that you have going on works. In fact, I think you've got a broken system, God. Your, your system is this. 
You obey, you do all these good things, and you get stuff. You jump through the right hoops for God, and God gives you a handout. Pull the lever, get a peanut. And you know what? I, I, I think, I don't think Job is obeying you because he loves you, because you're awesome. He's obeying you for the peanut. This is a, this is a welfare system. And he's taking advantage of it. And do you know what God says? You know what? Let's put that to the test. And here's what is amazing to me. Job doesn't know about this event. When we read this story, we read it knowing about that conversation. But Job doesn't know that. And all of a sudden, all of his handouts are gone. Every blessing that he thanked God for every night is gone, except for his wife. And his health. He praises the Lord anyways. God's holding court. The adversary shows up again. He says, ah, yeah, he says, hey. things are things. People trade everything they have for their health. And you will. You, you get sick, and the doctors can charge whatever they want to charge, and we pay it. He'll, he'll trade everything he has for his health. And God says, all right. Now, doctors will not usually diagnose you over the phone. And they usually don't like to diagnose people across the world. And they certainly don't like to diagnose people 4,000 years removed. But doctors have largely come to the conclusion, and there's some, some disagreement, but they largely have come to the conclusion that Job got the dreaded disease of elephantitis, also known as black leprosy. Leprosy that we usually talk about in... Uh, in scripture, it was called white leprosy. This was black leprosy. And as you read the accounts through Job, and you see all the things that, that, that physically, what's going on it, with his body, he's got open wounds. It's a good thing nobody ate recently. He says there's maggots in his wounds. He's, his bones are becoming brittle. And Job also reports that he suffers terrible nightmares. And he's got this leprosy all over him. His skin will turn black. It'll take the, 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 the consistency of elephant hide and then it'll fall off, leaving that open wound. You know what his friend said? You've sinned. They even get to the place they start making up lists of sins he must have committed. Isn't that encouraging? I mean, can you imagine you're going you're going through this, you're laying in the hospital, you had a heart attack, and you're you know, and, and uh, your friends come by to visit. Yeah, Dean, I know what you've been doing. You've been smoking, haven't you? You, you know, uh, you know what else you've been doing? Are you you've been you've been gossiping and you've been 
And you, you know, if you quit drinking so much, you wouldn't, have, you wouldn't have trouble. Now, it sounds ridiculous, but that's what they were doing. They started making up lists. You're looking after women. You were having affairs. You were with prostitutes, weren't you, Job? You start reading some of their list of sins, and you're saying, what in the world? And one of the guys even gets up and says, your children were in awful wicked sin, and that's why God killed them. It's because your children were wicked. Talk about poking an wound, open wound. I've never had to bury a child, but I can't imagine the hurt that has to be and to have to bury all of your children. And for someone to say they had it coming. Your Even if it's true, why would you say it? Even if that child was out drinking and slammed into a tree and died, why would you dare say it? That they had it coming. And the whole time, nobody understands. Nobody understands. But this, isn't, this, is not, this is not because of sin. This isn't because Job needs correction. It's simply because it's a test to see if Job is serving God for his handouts or if he's serving God because he loves them. It's not the only place in Scripture we find that. No. You can go to the book of Genesis and you see a, an old man walking up a mountainside, his boy holding the wood, the man holding the fire. And his son says to him, Dad, behold the wood, behold the fire, but where's the sacrifice? And that man is broken inside because he has been praying for three days inside himself, not out loud where anyone could hear him, but saying, Oh God, why would you have me kill my own son? You said this was the promised one. You said this is the one that you were going to make a great nation out of. Why are you making me do this? And I don't know how he said it. I think we kind of imagine he says it with a confidence. I think he said it with a shake in his voice. The Lord will provide a sacrifice. That doesn't make sense. God doesn't provide sacrifices. You provide sacrifices to God. That's how it works. And as Abraham is suffering, as he raises the knife, God reveals it's a test to see if he loves Isaac more than he loves God. It's a test. Sometimes we suffer just simply because of the choices we've made. Do you know that if you don't put gas in your car, it will leave you stranded on the side of the road? Eventually, it will stop. I remember when I was a young man and much, much more foolish than I am now. I used to run that gas tank pretty low. And I remember more than once, Lord, you turned water into wine. Can you turn air into gas? <laughs> and I think sometimes he did. <laughs> he puts up with our foolishness sometimes. You don't change the oil in your vehicle and you have engine trouble. It's not God punishing you. It's not that God's correcting you. And it's not that Satan's, uh, you know, harassing you. It's not a test. Sometimes it's just the natural consequences of the choices we make. And they don't all have to be sin. Another 
know a young lady, I used to work with her. She had her credit cards. She had credit cards like most grandmas have pictures of their grandkids. And she would, and this is what she told me, she'd go, she'd get her, uh, get her credit card bills and she'd take a cash advance from this credit card to pay the minimum payment on that credit card. And this is, and she kept doing this over and over again. And I said to her, that will catch up to you. She, she quit working before I, that happened. I don't know if she got a better job or if what she ended up doing. But eventually that's going to catch up. Is it sin? I don't know if it's sin, but it isn't smart. It isn't smart. The choices we make have consequences. And we all know that. But sometimes we suffer the consequences of other people's choices. And this is when we really feel like it's not fair. This is the times when it gets really, really hard. When someone else sinned or someone else made a foolish decision and we're the one that suffers. Sometimes they walk away unscathed, unharmed. God's given us a world where we have free choice. We get to make our own choices. We're not free from the consequences of our choices, and sometimes we cannot be free of the choices other people make. Brother Rasmussen gets mad at me, and he punches me in the nose. I get a broken nose. And Brother Rasmussen, he doesn't, he doesn't even know it. He doesn't feel anything. I hope it hurts your hand, but... <laughs> But I'm the one that suffers because of his choice. And we don't like that. But could you imagine a world, and we'd like to, where everybody suffered for their own consequences, their own choices, or their own consequences. But you know, it can't, it can't happen. Because we, God has created mankind to be creatures of community. It's why when one person hurts in our church, all of us hurt. Because we are a community. We are, we are a family. And when one person does something to harm another, it hurts the whole unit. And there, it's, it becomes, uh, uh, it becomes a, a, an impossibility to have both community and everybody suffers their own consequences. When your child goes out and does something terrible, and it's their minor, who pays for it? You do. Now, you may make them work it off, but you do. And it hurts the whole family. Now they're grown, and they make a bad choice, and, and they're in jail, or they're, or they're in a marriage that's miserable. And who suffers? Not only them, but the children and you. Sometimes the suffering in this world is just because God's given us free will. It's a great gift, but it's also a terrible gift. It's a two-edged sword. It's a wonderful thing. I don't even know a, a good analogy, but I guess the closest I could have is, would be a gun that you would have in your home for self-defense. It's a wonderful thing to have to be able to defend your home and to make sure that criminals know, don't come to that house. But if you don't have it properly taken care of and out of place and a child gets a hold of it and tragedy befalls your home, that great gift of the Second Amendment becomes a great, terrible tragedy. And so now, God's given us this great gift of free will, but at the same time, it comes with great responsibility because not only do we hurt ourselves, it's my life, I can do with it what I want. You can't do with anything. You can't hardly make a choice that doesn't affect someone else. 
choices that we make affect each other and create suffering. I guess there's other reasons, and I don't know that we could exhaust all the reasons why there's suffering in the world. But I want us to imagine that you and I are trying to figure out how to live life well. We want a good life. I, I think everybody wants to have a good life. And there are three books of the Bible, wisdom literature, that we would go. Let's pretend for a moment that they are people. They're, they are living, breathing people that we can talk to. And the first we go to is Proverbs. Proverbs describes herself as a woman. And she has all the answers. She, I, I like to think of her as the young Bible college graduate in her first church. She knows that if you do X, Y will happen. Work hard and you'll prosper. Rise early, get to work hard, and you will have a uh, you'll uh, you will do well. If you're lazy, if you if you sleep in all day, if if you make your excuses why you can't go outside, you know there might be a lion or something out there. Then you will, and you're lazy. You're not going to prosper very well. And w proverbs has so much wisdom. And you, just, you can just listen to Proverbs as she tells about how to live a good life. And she tells us to begin with the fear of the Lord. Raise up your child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he won't depart from it. It's good advice. Good wisdom. It's the wisdom of the Lord. You know, it's funny, sometimes she even contradicts herself. She one place she says, answer not a fool in his folly. And the very next verse she says, answer a fool in his folly. So what? <laughs> it's right there, right side by side, contradicting herself. What are you doing, Proverbs? What are you, what are you saying? You just have to know the right situation. There's sometimes that you need to answer a fool in their folly and, and try to help them out, and there's other times just keep your mouth shut or you're going to fall into the folly yourself. I think in our, modern, in our modern lingo, maybe we would say it like this. Don't get into a political debate on Facebook or else be made to look like a fool yourself. After sitting at Proverbs' feet for a long time, you're just amazed at her wisdom. You're just, just, wow. If I want a good life, these are the things that I should do. And then perhaps you'd go over to Ecclesiastes, the preacher. I like to think of him as the middle-aged preacher who's seen some things. And you go over there and you say, uh... Preacher, I'd like, to, I'd, like to, I'd like to hear about your wisdom. And he says, meaningless. Life is meaningless under the sun. He said, you know, I lived by Proverbs. I lived by everything that, that pro the Proverbs taught us. I lived that. I, I know the, uh, those things. I would watch people. I studied people who tried to live by Proverbs. And I'm going to tell you something. Proverbs doesn't always work. I've seen good parents who've raised their kids under the fear of the Lord, and their kids didn't turn out. I've seen people that have worked hard, real hard, and they've been faithful in the place of, of work, and I've seen, their, I've seen them get fired. I've seen them uh, have bad crops. I've seen them not, things just not work out well for them. You start getting a little uncomfortable. Isn't, isn't wisdom, isn't proverb right? Isn't that from the Holy Spirit? Isn't, what? In fact, Proverbs describes wisdom as an attribute of God. 
the wisdom of God. What's, what's going on? And, and he says, it's meaningless. Vanity of vanities. You can do everything right and not work out. And he looks at you intently and he says, Proverbs are not promises. Now, the Pro- Ecclesiastes has a friend who's the author of the book. He's written down what the preacher had to say, and he tells you at the end, no, you need to listen to what Ecclesiastes is saying. It doesn't always work out. He's right. But let's remember, fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. It's what the proverb writer said, and this is what the author of Ecclesiastes is trying to help you to understand what the preacher is saying. Is doesn't all, Proverbs are not promises. Sometimes it doesn't work out. You, but you keep, if you want to have the good life, start with the fear of the Lord. It doesn't always work out right. Maybe you leave Ecclesiastes' house and you're kind of, wow. Is he even from God? I mean, man, that's depressing. But it doesn't always work out. You mean I can work real hard and still not get a crop? I can, I can go to church and I can take my kids to Sunday school and I can, I can do everything right and my kids not serve the Lord? I can, I can do all that? And you go over to Job's house. And I picture Job as this old man. He's a retired preacher. He's been through Proverbs and he's been through Ecclesiastes. And as he sees you, as, as he opens the door, he says, come on in. Makes you a cup of coffee or tea or whatever it is you like to drink and says, come sit down because old people never want to just have a short conversation. They want to have a long conversation. And you sit down and you have this long conversation with Job. You say, Job, I'm just a little bit confused. I've read Proverbs. He says, if I would do these things, that I would have a good life. But Ecclesiastes tells me I can do all the right things and I still might not turn out right. What do you say? You've lived a long time. I think Job would quiet for just a moment, stroke his long beard, And he'd say, you know, I went through some hard things. I lived Proverbs. I did it exactly the way that that Proverbs taught. He says, I didn't lust after a woman. I kept my eyes where they ought to be. I made a covenant with my eyes. I I lived Proverbs carefully. And you know, Ecclesiastes is right when he says that sometimes it doesn't work out. He says sometimes you put in the crop and it doesn't rain. And sometimes you do the right thing at work and you don't get the promotion the other person did and even though they're dirty because the company was more interested in making money than having good employees. And sometimes, sometimes you pour your soul and your life into a kid and they grow up and they get in the wrong crowd and it doesn't work. He says he's right. Ecclesiastes is right. He says, as I was suffering, I called out to God. I said, God, I deserve an answer. I think he kind of puts his head down a little bit maybe a little embarrassed, a little ashamed as he thinks about it. And then he looks up at you with big eyes and he says, and God showed up. You know, the sun is what, 93 million miles away? And if you look at it long enough, it'll burn your eyes out. And you know, 
we think we can walk into the presence of its creator casually. And as the Lord came in a storm cloud, I realized I could not gaze at him for very long. I fell on my face. And all the things I had rehearsed, all the things I wanted to say to God about suffering and how it wasn't fair and how he ha- that I didn't deserve what was happening to me, all those things that I had rehearsed, I forgot. I couldn't say them. I, ha- I had a case. I, I, had, I had made it well to my friends. I had rehearsed it. I knew it. I knew it inside out and backwards. I had the right things to say to God, but when he showed up, I was too terrified to say anything. And instead of me asking questions, he cross-examined me. And this is what God says to our suffering. Let's go on a trip together. Can you explain to me how... The ocean knows to stop where it does. Can you explain to me how animals work and how they get through life? Can you explain to me why I water and I create beautiful places on earth that you will ne- no man will ever see? No man has ever seen it. And yet I cause it to rain there, and I cause there to be beautiful flowers there that no person enjoys. And then God has two terrible creatures, Bohemoth and Leviathan, that'll kill you instantly. Lots of arguments over who they, what kind of animals they were. Maybe they're extinct today. Maybe, maybe uh, some poetic license was taken. I'm not sure. But basically, they are horrible, terrible creatures that, that have the ability to, te- to kill a man easily. And this is what God says. Can you control them? I do. And Job, maybe you look at him and say, what does all that mean? I mean, you didn't get an answer. You didn't get an answer at all. That's no kind of answer to why there's suffering in this world. That's no answer for why we, that we have these bad things, why Proverbs doesn't always work. When we follow the wisdom of God, that's no answer. And Job says, listen. What he was trying to communicate is this, that this universe is so complex and so difficult that if he tried to explain it to us, we couldn't understand it. If God himself this morning would have preached this message and would have tried to help us to understand why they're suffering in this world, our brains are too small to be able to grasp it. I'm not sure I'm satisfied with that answer. Maybe you say that to Job. Then you say, you know, you got all your stuff back and you got double, didn't you? You, Yeah. Is that a reward for passing the test? Job shakes his head no. I didn't deserve what I lost and the suffering that I went through and I did not deserve the blessings that I received at the end of my life. God in his wisdom and his understanding of the complex world chose to gift them to me. And just because you passed your test in your life doesn't mean that you're going to have the same blessings that I did at the end of your story. So what is the conclusion of this? What is, what is the answer what is the answer to why there's suffering? And what is the, how are we supposed to live in this life? The proverb writer, Ecclesiastes, and Job all give us the same answer 
fear God and keep his commandments. Proverbs writer says, fear God, and, and, and a lot of times, most of the time, it's going to work out. The Ecclesiastes writer would say, fear God, and even if it doesn't work out, keep trusting God. Keep being obedient. It's the best way. And Job would say, whether if good or evil comes in your life, just keep fearing God and keeping his commandments. God knows what he's doing. I don't know if that's the answer that leaves us satisfied. I don't know if that's the answer that's going to cause the whole of our young people to, to understand how God can be good and great and powerful and yet at the same time allow evil. I don't know if that answers the question in your heart. But all three Individuals who, uh, uh, of the books of wisdoms, each of them says to us, if you don't understand it, just keep trusting. Just keep trusting. And every single one of us will face things in our lives we won't understand. And every single one of us will suffer things that don't make sense. We live in a fallen world. Remember in John chapter 9 where there's a blind man and the disciple says, who sinned that this man's born blind? Did he sin? Did his parents sin? Maybe he was going to sin in his future and this was to help make it where he wouldn't sin. What, what's going on, Jesus? And Jesus said, we live in a fallen world. We're going to show you the glory of God in him. And Jesus healed him. Doesn't make sense. That man had lived a life of blindness not understanding why. We don't always get the answer why, to our question why. But three witnesses stand up and testify to us this morning. Keep trusting anyways. Keep trusting. He's not causing you to suffer for his own pleasure. He's not causing you to suffer because he wants you to be miserable. God has a divine purpose. We may be able to figure it out. Maybe someday we'll look back and we'll say, I, I now understand. But we may come to the end of our life and never understand why. But we have to trust that God knows exactly what he's doing in our life. I don't know if you're satisfied with that. But when you get to that place, you'll find it does. You'll find it does satisfy that you know that in a complex universe that we can't understand, that God understands it. I choose, when I don't understand, I choose to trust Him. Let's stand together.